Open your Bibles to Romans uh, chapter 5 as we come back uh, for a third Sunday looking at the first 11 verses of this chapter. One of the great tragedies in the modern church, we might say, is a loss of the sense of the wrath of God. The idea of an angry God, the idea of a wrathful God, may not be denied outright by many people, but it is at least looked at as an inconvenient truth. A shameful idea, one they would prefer not to talk about, one they would prefer maybe not to sing about, or anything like that. And if you need any evidence that such is the case, you could just take note of how recently the Presbyterian Church USA chose not to include the popular hymn in Christ Alone, which we sang this morning, because they take offense at the phrase, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God is satisfied. It's not just the Presbyterians, it's even the Baptist, a Baptist newspaper a couple of years ago, ran an editorial where the author claimed that he too would not sing such lines in such hymns because he couldn't stomach the idea of the wrath of God. Or for that matter, you could go to the websites of the most popular preachers or the most popular churches searching in vain really to find sermons or sermon series on something like the wrath of God because it has become an embarrassing subject to so many Christians, uh, if not completely rejected, at least swept under the carpet, kept in the closet, out of the view of a watching world, lest somehow it is thought that they gain a distorted view of our God. That reality would be sad enough if you considered that the wrath of God is taught all over Scripture and clearly taught, and even the book of Romans begins with the declaration that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all unbelieving society. But what makes this even more tragic is that the church's rejection and embarrassment of the doctrine of the wrath of God, the church's belief that it is somehow going to present a distorted view of God to the world, the real tragedy is is that without the doctrine of the wrath of God, there is little foundation to speak in any meaningful way about the love of God. Because in so many ways, it is the understanding of God's wrath that the Bible itself uses to define God's love. In other words, a God who is never angry with anybody really is not all that special if he turns around and loves everybody. But his love, in biblical sense, is always most clearly defined and most clearly demonstrated and most clearly established and validated in the light of the reality of his real and eternal wrath. So that without a proper understanding of that, there's no proper understanding of the love of God. And by the way, with no proper understanding of God's love, there's no proper application of it. No transformation through it. And so you have today a church that talks a lot about love. You have a church that speaks a lot about loving deeds and loving kindness and helping the poor and doing good things and community projects and all that kind of stuff. Just like the world around them, they rally around missions and causes and projects like every community group, but in their day-to-day situations and relationships of life, they find it as hard as anyone to love the way the Bible calls them to love. They find it as hard as anyone to love the people other than those who are closest to them or those who are just like them or those who are easy to get along with or those who make them feel good. 
If you're not in that select group, they find it difficult and quite frankly, they avoid those opportunities. The difficult people, the truly needy people, the problematic, the fractious, the angry, there's no love for them because they don't love in return. But it's exactly those kinds of situations where you really prove the depth of your understanding of the love of God. How He loved you, even in His wrath. Because as Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. In other words, there's nothing special about love when it's so selfishly motivated. There's an absence of real and supernatural love in the modern church because there's an absence of a real understanding of the wrath of God and what the love of God means in light of it. Now that truth is not framed anywhere better than our passage today in Romans chapter 5 and particularly in the 8th verse where Paul writes, God shows or demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And over the course of a few verses here, Paul goes on to explain that not only were we sinners, but we were ungodly, we were weak, we were enemies of God, and yet God still, in that state and in that condition and in that kind of activity, God still demonstrated love toward us. Now that love is tremendously profound because of how unlovable we are and were and because of how undeserving we were of God's love and how deserving we were of His wrath. And if you remember, this is exactly how we came to this point in the letter. Paul opened up explaining how the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, and eventually in, in a way in which all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and thus we all stand under the wrath of God. That has been the message or was the message of the first three chapters of this book. But it's not the end because Paul tells us that God has also revealed not only wrath, but righteousness. The righteousness of God has been revealed And the way in which we all can be cleansed of our guilt and stand before God righteous and justified in His sight and according to His law, that way, of course, is by faith, believing that God sent Jesus Christ, that He died as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sin, by believing that God raised Him from the dead in victory over sin and death, And simply by believing that, Paul says, God grants us the gift of His complete righteousness. He takes all of our sin and our guilt and our punishment. They are gone, taken by Christ on the cross. Now that, as they say, is hard to believe. It's hard to believe because we are hardwired in our brain to think that God deals with us according to our deeds. To think and imagine that the reason that things go well in our life is because God is responding to good things that He sees in us. The reason that things maybe don't go well is because God is responding to some level of uh, unfaithfulness and that God's love, in essence, is conditional based on our performance. We're hardwired to think that God, if He is kind to us, is essentially responding to some kind of virtue He either sees or lack of virtue that He sees in us. He's either punishing or rewarding us according to our works. He can't be simply dealing with us in this kind of mercy in Christ. But it's Paul's purpose, especially in Romans 5, 
to drive home that this is exactly what God does. This is exactly the way He responds to you. That any blessing in your life, that any goodness in your life has absolutely nothing to do with your virtue. Has everything to do with Christ and Christ alone. Because as Paul says in another place, by the works of the law, no one is justified before God. And if anyone adds to or seeks to add to the work of Christ, and he says in Galatians chapter 2, then Christ died for no purpose. It isn't Christ works plus yours. It is Christ works plus nothing that caused you to stand before God. Now, as I said, that can be hard to believe that God deals with us simply according to the mercy of Christ, particularly in difficult times when things are not going well. When there are trials and struggles, we tend to want to think that God is punishing us rather than believing that God is loving us. And so part of Romans 5 is to assure us that even during those times, our position before God, our justification before God, our blamelessness and perfection in God's eyes has not changed. Even if God is taking us through a period of trial, it's for the sake of our good. And so, Paul writes this in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul is speaking to us as believers here, and what he's trying to get us to wrap our minds around are the guarantees that come to us Because of this work of justification, the guarantees that are ours because of the work of Christ. And we started to go through these a couple of weeks ago. You remember the first one in verse 1, which is simply peace with God. Peace with God. We are born under God's wrath. We are born destined for eternal wrath. But because of justification, we now and forever... Have a relationship of peace. No matter how much you may fail, no matter how much you may disappoint yourself and other people around you, you will always have a relationship of peace, not of hostility with God. Any and all of His anger was forever completely appeased by the cross of Christ. Secondly, A second benefit of the Lord's death and resurrection is, in verse 2, security in grace. Paul says, through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We've been brought out of a realm of performance and law-keeping and maintaining some sort of standing that way into a realm of grace, a realm of favor. And it's a place, he says, from which we will never be cast out. We will always 
permanently stand there because of faith. Thirdly, we talked about the hope of glory, which he adds at the end of verse 2, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We talked about this last week, this, this rejoicing being kind of a confident joy in the reality that one day we'll be glorified, the reality that we will, having been cleansed of our guilt now, we will be completely and forever removed from the tendency and the, and the, the, the presence of sin through glorification. The power of sin over our mortal flesh will be eradicated and we will be transformed into perfection with this glorification and we stand in hope of that. It is as secure as the reality of our birth, which will never be wiped away and neither will our glorification. That brought us, fourthly, to the confident joy that we can therefore have in suffering. As Paul says in verse 3, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces, care, excuse me, produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So Paul wants us to understand this confident assurance and joy doesn't necessarily abide with us only when things are going well. In fact, We have this confidence, he says, even in sufferings, which are going to be a reality of your life, just as they were a reality of the life of Christ. We don't take sufferings and we don't take pains and we don't take difficulties as signs that somehow God has abandoned us any more than we take them in the life of Christ as a sign that God had abandoned Him. We face them confidently joyous that God is working a purpose through them. The purpose, as Paul says here, being endurance and endurance resulting in proven character and proven character resulting in hope. Or as we said last week, it would be impossible to demonstrate hope without hopelessness. You could talk all day about how bright a light is but it's never going to be fully appreciated until you put it into the darkest of rooms. In like manner, your hope will never really be proven for what, it's it, what it, for what it is until it is put into hopeless circumstances. And so God takes us through those because there's no way for us to really exercise, no way for us to really ever grow our faith unless we're put into a place which demands it. God, knowing this, brings us through those times so that we can rejoice as we see His faithfulness again and again and again. That brought us to the fifth guarantee of this doctrine of justification, which is the assurance of His love. The assurance of His love, which is not passing, which is not fleeting, It's not here today and gone tomorrow. It is always there. It's always there. Paul says in verse 5, this hope that God brings us through does not disappoint. It doesn't leave us ashamed. It's not something that leaves us embarrassed because of our faith in times of trial. It's not something that is subject to any genuine ridicule. And why is that? Why does hope not put us to shame? Well, because God has given us two significant and undeniable assurances of His love. First one, we mentioned last week, is, in, is internal. In verse 5, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. When we come to Christ, God pours out into our hearts and we experience in our inner man the love of God in such a complete way that our hope is confirmed. He pours out, He pours over, He drenches us in the love of God and in our inner man we have a witness to our spirit, that we are the children of God. 
Now, it's important to note that this work of the Holy Spirit, like every other work of the Holy Spirit, always works in conjunction with, and we might even say through, the Word of God. Every work of the Holy Spirit is always worked out through the Word of God, whether it's inspiration, whether it's illumination, whether it is filling, whether it is regeneration. You can take any work you want of the Holy Spirit and His tool in God's providence is always God's Word. And so it wouldn't surprise us then that in order for us to feel or in order for us to sense or in order for us to abide in this continuing confidence of God's love shed abroad in our hearts, in order for us to know this love, or or I should say, in order for us to feel this love, we must know this love. And in order for us to know this love, we have to know the Word of God. If we don't know God's Word, if we don't meditate upon the Word, then we have no real expectation that the Holy Spirit would have any tool to keep our hearts flooded with this truth. John Flavel, commenting on the New Covenant work of the Holy Spirit in one of his works on the Holy Spirit, says this, It is very observable that the works of grace wrought by the Spirit in the heart of believers are represented to us in Scripture as a transcript or a copy of the written work. He presents Jeremiah 31, verse 33, as his text. I will write my law in their hearts. Flavel says, now is a true copy, answers to the original, word for word, letter for letter, point for point. So do the works of the Spirit in our souls harmonize with the dictates of the Spirit in the Scriptures, end quote. In other words, when God promised the giving of the Holy Spirit, He promised not only that He would pour out His Spirit into our hearts, but He would write the law on our hearts. And what Flavel is saying is that these are two different ways of speaking of the same thing. That this is the Holy Spirit, just as He writes God's law on our hearts by means of reading, by means of hearing, by means of understanding. He also pours out God's love in our hearts by means of reading, by means of hearing, and by means of understanding. And so, if we deprive ourselves of the Word, if we stop reading the Word on a normal and regular basis, especially in times of trial and difficulty and barrenness, It shouldn't surprise us if we quickly begin to doubt and wonder whether God really loves us. We've taken away the very tool of the Holy Spirit by which He sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. But as we fill our minds with the Word of God, as the Holy Spirit takes that and completely fills our hearts with confidence and assurance of God's love. While others may ridicule our faith during these times of trial, there is no sense of embarrassment or shame. This hope doesn't put us to shame when the Holy Spirit is at work in this way. But it isn't just this inner assurance that we can lean on during these trials. There's also an outer assurance. There's a work that God has done, if you will, on the outside. And that is the assurance that comes to us through the love of Christ demonstrated on the cross. The work of the Holy Spirit within, the work of Christ without, make this wonderful combination, an affirmation, constantly speaking into our lives of the love of God so that the Spirit, the Son, and God all echo forth in the same testimony, unin, uh, excuse me, unending and enduring in His love. This assurance during our times of trial, God that 
removes for us this idea that God would suddenly reject you, that God somehow is not fulfilling and following through on His promises. This is the assurance that that God will always treat us as He's always treated us, not according to our weaknesses and failures, but according to His grace. Because as Paul says in verse 6, even while we were still weak, at the right time, or you might think of this, at the time of our great need, Christ died for the ungodly. So, in other words, Christ has already proven, even during our weakest, most ungodly moment, that He was willing to die for us. And verse 6 is particularly pointing to the timing of this death. While we were still weak. The verse emphasizes in its construction, even in the Greek language, this this timing while we were still ungodly. In other words, Jesus wasn't coordinating His love with some act or expression on our part. He wasn't sitting around waiting for some sign of repentance before He committed Himself in love toward us. His love was poured out to us at our most unworthy point. And Paul presents that as proof that even in times of trial, his love is not based on any condition, on any performance, on any failure, or whatever it might be. It's not based on any accomplishment. It never has been. As John says in 1 John chapter 4, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. You want to understand what love is? You have to understand it that way. If you want to understand what love is, you have to understand the condition in which you were found. You have to understand the place where God saw you. The wrath that you were under. If you want to understand love, you have to understand that. And this has always been the way that God communicated His love to His people. This has always been what He has wanted you to understand. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to one of the more gripping chapters in all of Scripture when it comes to the love of God. The book of Ezekiel, chapter 16. This chapter is... is amazing in its graphic detail of the love of God, but also in its graphic detail of the sinfulness and failures of His people Israel. So graphic that Jews actually forbid that it be read in public because of how grotesque the picture of the sinner that it gives. Ezekiel writes, again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. When I passed by you, I saw you wallowing in your blood. I said to you, in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, 
and yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again, I saw you. Behold, you were at the age of love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. And I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you, anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen, covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. I put a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears, a beautiful crown on your head. You were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was fine linen and silk embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful, advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown, lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them you played the whore. You took your embroidered garments to cover them, and set my oil and my incense before them, also, my bread that I gave you, you fed, I fed you with fine flour and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and wallowing in your blood. And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. And at the head of every street, you built your lofty place. You made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you diminished your allotted portion, delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea. Even with this, you were not satisfied. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord. Because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street, making your lofty place at the square, you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife, you receive strangers instead of your husband. Men give gifts to all prostitute, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore. You gave payment. While no payment was given to you, therefore you were different. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, because your, your lust was poured out, your nakedness uncovered, in your whorings and with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because the blood of your children that you gave to them. Therefore, behold, I will give all your lovers with you. I will give all your lovers with you, uh, with whom you took pleasure, all those who, lo- uh, who you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you on every side. I will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. 
I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood. And those who shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I will give you into into their hands and they shall throw down your vaunted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall rip up your clothes, take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crown against you. They shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. They shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore and you shall give payment no more. And so I will satisfy my wrath on you and my jealousy shall depart from you and I will be calm and no more angry because you've not remembered the days of your youth. You've enraged me with all these things. Therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord God. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? Behold, everyone uses Proverbs. Who uses Proverbs? Well, use this proverb about you, like mother, like daughter. You're the daughter of your mother who loathed her husband and her children. And you're the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite, your father an Amorite. And you're the elder sister, and your elder sister is Samaria who lived with her daughters in the north of you. And your younger sister who lived in the south of you is Sodom with her daughters. Not only did you walk in her ways and do according to their abominations, with, with a very little time you were more corrupt than they in all their ways. As I live, declares the Lord, your system, sister Sodom and your daughters have not done as you. Your daughters have done. You and your daughters have done. Behold, this is the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Samaria has not committed half your sins. You have committed more abominations than they. You have made your sisters appear righteous by your abominations that they've committed. Bear your disgrace, you also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters because your sins in which you acted more abominable, abominab- abominably than they, they are more right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace, for you've made your sisters appear righteous. I will restore their fortunes, but the fortunes of Sodom and her sisters and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters, I will restore your own fortunes in their midst, that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you've done becoming consolation to them. As for your sister Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former state, Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former state, and you and your daughters shall return to your former state. Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride before your wickedness was uncovered? Now you've become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria and all those around her for the daughters of Philistia, those all around who despise you. You bear the penalty of your lewdness and your abominations, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways. Be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters. But not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you, for all that you've done, declares the Lord. You can't understand those last verses unless you understand the chapter. You can't comprehend the love of God unless you understand the abominations. 
You can't know the love of God without knowing the wrath of God. And so when Paul comes to us and he tells us that it was God who came to us when we were weak, when we were wretched and poor, when he tells us that it was God who at the time of our need died for the ungodly, It makes sense in verse 7 when Paul says, One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps a good man someone might dare to die for. But God demonstrates His love toward us. And then even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, this is not the love that you find in the world. This is not the love that you have from your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers. This may not even be the love that you have from your spouse, from your parents, or even from your children. In so many ways, that unredeemed love is conditional love. It's love that someone may pour out on you and pour out on you. And if you don't meet their expectations or if you cross the line too many times or if you disappoint too many times, the result is you're cast out. But Paul's telling you God's love is not like that. It's not like that. He found you when you were weak, when you were poor, when you were squirming in your blood. He found you when you were ungodly, when you were cast off, and He showed His love to you. And if He did it then, how much more now that He's redeemed you? How much more now that you're His. Back over in Romans chapter 5. There's no reason for thinking that God would suddenly change His standard of love. That now He's begun to set conditions like the love of the world. This isn't the self-centered, responsive love that gives and shows kindness and affection only to those who fulfill and satisfy it. This isn't that pseudo-love masquerading as love. This is the love of God. And Paul says we need to understand it really presenting to us four striking terms to comprehend where we were when God set His love upon us. First, in verse 6, he says we were weak. That's not physical weakness. That's moral weakness. We were in a place like a cast-out child, unable to do anything for ourselves, unable to be good enough, unable to demonstrate any worthiness, unable of presenting anything that would commend us to God's care, unable to do anything to save ourselves. God didn't measure us and take note of something that gave us some standing before Him. He took note that we were all equally powerless and hopeless in a moral sense. And yet it was at that time that Christ died for us. And secondly there in verse 6 he says we were ungodly. A word that generally has reference to religious duties. That's to say that in many cases we weren't attending church. We weren't reading our Bibles. We weren't genuinely praying. If we were coming to the house of God and offering worship it was at best superficial and hypocritical. In many cases we were irreligious altogether. And so we shouldn't imagine that some failure in religious duty now is going to be determinative of God's love. Thirdly, and more explicitly, he says in verse 8, we were sinners. God shows His love in that while we were sinners, He died for us. So we weren't just irreligious. We were active sinners who had no concern for the standards of God. We disregarded it. We disrespected it. In some cases, we outright resented it. We didn't like being told that we couldn't lie. We didn't like being told that we couldn't be greedy. We didn't like being told that we couldn't covet. We didn't like being told that we couldn't steal. We didn't like being told that we couldn't be lustful or adulterous or whatever it might be. We didn't like those things. We may have abided by them for social and cultural reasons, but in our hearts we sought rebellion. 
And because of all this, there's a fourth term that Paul employs to describe the state in which God found us. We were enemies of God. We were in rebellion against Him, and because of that rebellion, He was an enemy against us. His anger was burning. And so Paul says in verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by His death, by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, we'll be saved by His life. You see, before you came to know Christ, this is the way the Scripture defines you. The enemy of God. It's not that simply you are against Him. It is that He is against you. He is your enemy. He is the one who Jesus says can not only destroy the body, but can cast your soul into hell forever. And the Scripture declares that if you are not a believer, that you are under the wrath of God, that all of His anger for all of your sin is, is fuming every day. And that whether you believe it or sense it or feel it or have ever heard it, the truth of the Scripture is God's wrath is real. He's your enemy if you don't know Him. But the good news right here in verse 9 is that because of faith in Christ, we can be saved, listen to this, by Him from the wrath of God. Who saves us from the wrath of God? He does. He saves us from His own wrath. How does He do that? Well, in a very real sense, He does it by sending Christ to take your place on the cross, all the wrath, all the guilt, all the shame that you feel God poured out on His Son so that He bore the full penalty of your sin so that now you can have a relationship not of wrath, not as an enemy, but one of peace. And as a result of that, verse 10 says, we're reconciled to God Notice, it's a passive verb. It isn't that we're reconciling ourselves. It isn't that we're working ourselves up to a state where we become acceptable to God. That's not how it works. God reconciles us to Himself. We were alienated. We were hostile toward Him. He was hostile toward us. And yet, in that state, God's love is put on its grandest display. As W.G.T. Shedd says, At the very moment when God is displeased, He is capable of devising kind things for the very objects of His displeasure. This is what God does. That even though you have offended Him, even though you have rebelled against Him, even though you have sinned against Him, God can devise kind things for you. Because of the grace of Christ. And by pouring out His kindness in the cross, He can reconcile you to Himself, wiping away all of your sin and bringing peace. It's that robust understanding of the wrath of God that leads us to a real understanding of the love of God. It's the meditation upon that that helps us understand how we love those who are unlovable. It's a recognition of that, understanding the state you were in when God found you, understanding how far God was willing to go in loving you, which instructs us on how far we're to go in loving one another. And so Paul says in verse 10, if while we were enemies with God, God, we were reconciled to God by the death, much more now. Much more now that we are reconciled, we'll be saved by His life. If when we were alienated like that, and if God was willing to go to that extent to love us, how much more secure now are we that we've been reconciled to Him? 
And all that leads us to the final guarantee that comes because of this justification in verse 11. The joy, the joy in the Lord. Paul says there, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, listen to these beautiful past tense verbs, through whom we have now received reconciliation. How painful a thought it is of where we were and how rebellious we were. How humbling a thought it is of just how disrespectful, dishonoring we were to God. But at the same time, how sweet it is that God has reconciled us to Himself. That after everything we did to Him, that He still has not cast us off. That we can hear the words spoken to us that God spoke to Israel after all of their failures. Yet, still, have I loved you. Yet, still, have I loved you. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation and distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's stand together and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, what a demonstration. What a demonstration of love. And to the extent that we are unwilling or undisciplined to consider your wrath, to think about where we were, to the extent that like Israel we forgot the days of our youth, to the extent that we forgot those things, we have failed to understand love. We have failed to understand the depths of it. And yes, Lord, we confess that we failed to show it. Oh, how rich is the kindness and love of our God. Oh, how eternal are your covenants with us. Unspeakable are your ways and full of glory. And Lord, today our hearts are lifted up again. You've brought us to this place in Your Word. You've shed abroad Your love in our hearts. You've demonstrated it through Christ. And for that, Lord, we offer up our lips in joyful song and our lives in imitation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.